this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Here we go. Here we go. It is podcast time, and I feel like it has been forever since we were on this particular horse. Yeah, we recorded our last podcast at the beginning of the holiday break. It was like December... Oh, it was on the solstice. It was December 21st. Really? Wasn't it? I believe it was. Ah. Ah. I remember. Is that true? (sighs) Anywho, so. we're back. We, here we are. Back on the weekly recording. Do you know I watched a podcast yesterday? Yeah. Yeah, not one of ours. Um, of this riotous rugby podcast and the swearing. Oh, my I, goodness. <laughs> I wondered what you were watching because I heard the language. The, it's filthy. <laughs> Can we spice ours up with a little bit of, I don't know. Naughtiness. <laughs> Homeopathy after dark. Ah. Uh, well, I mean, this one uh, happily uh, is not involving the video, but I think we should really sort that out. I think we will sort that out. All right, good. All right. Especially since you have lipstick on. Stop it. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Uh-huh. That's not tr- it's also not true, folks. Um, <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about research. And gosh, it's a huge topic for us to cover, but let's just kick on with sort of how we've approached our place in the evolving research paradigm in homeopathy. And I think as we sort of set the stage for what we're going to talk about for the next, I don't know, half hour or so, however long it takes, is sort of the different... Why are you cracking up? (laughs) Because it could be 10 minutes, but it could be an hour and 10 minutes. We have no idea. Right. So if you're driving in your car, this, I don't know, Keep this, going. The, yeah, move, <laughs> move forward. So don't forget to indicate. It's it's kind of a it's a funny place because there are a number of opportunities in research and homeopathy is sort of underrepresented in the larger research paradigm. Would you agree? Oh my god, absolutely. And, and lack of yeah for a bunch of reasons. Yeah, and <clears throat> there are and and you know we come at it both of us as. Researchers, and I mean, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast. I actually never thought I would be a practitioner. I was interested only in the research aspect, um, which would have been such a shame because you're so good with people, and you're such a good prescriber. I think about it; that would have been a narrow approach, and lots and lots of students and lots and lots of clients would not have benefited from. What happened? Oh, you're so nice. But but it does speak to one point, which is something you brought up. Um, we So actually, for context, we did a talk similar to some of the things we're going to talk about today. 
just two days ago on what was it Tuesday night, and it was for the Homeopathic Nurses Association, mm-hmm. and it was a great opportunity to speak to medical professionals about how they can participate in research, and we introduced to them our PGRN, which is a practitioner-generated research network idea. The first thing you just said there is really important. Hang on, you want to keep going, don't you? Well, I just want to put it into the context because it was that um, you brought up one of the one of the slides that you presented was that um, a challenge in homeopathy is that we tend to work in our silos, and part of that is because the type of people who are predisposed to becoming homeopaths are often introverted people who sort of work in their own little cubby. I think similar to therapists and counselors and folks that are in the helping professions. Yeah. We're actually, even though, you know, we're able to socialize and all the rest of it, most of us are (laughs) somewhat introverted. Introverted. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think, well, put it a different way rather than labeling it. Like reflective time is valued. Yeah. Highly. Um, yeah, with with uh, folks in our in our in our profession. Yeah, uh. and also we we work a little outside the mainstream, which then means you're you know when you're swimming upstream, it takes a, it takes a little bit more energy. Oh my god, barging your way through all of those other fishes <laughs> <laughs> to complete your analogy. You know if if. You know, the video idea is, right, because then they could see the gestures that you're making, yeah. uh, which include you as a fish. I used to have a T-shirt uh, from a, a, when I was putting my, I think it might have been before homeopathy, so I'm in my 20s, early 20s. Doing the era of your diaper pants? It might have been. <laughs> and, uh, but I was working in a beer distributor. Ah. And I got this T-shirt that I loved. Was it purple? No. It was white, but it had a picture of one fish swimming upstream against a million other fishes. Really? Yeah, and it was an advertisement for Red Stripe beer, which I think is Caribbean beer. Yeah, you can get that here in, in the States. Right. But I love that T-shirt, and, it, you know, there's always a part, you know, just to reiterate the point, you know, there's a... You didn't know that, did you? About your T-shirt? No. No. I, I, I haven't seen that T-shirt, but I think it's interesting... Oh, I don't that- have it anymore. No, but you do have other things from that era, which perhaps you shouldn't. Anyway, but <laughs> I digress. Um, but I do find it interesting that you may have seen yourself as that fish swimming upstream. Well, if historically, uh, I was really struggling in my early 20s because I studied so hard and got a kick-ass degree and I was unemployable. Weird, right? Yeah, you go from first-class honours degree to selling beer. Or no, not even selling it, shifting it, yeah, <laughs> moving it, not even that well. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've talked about that in a previous podcast. All right, all right, all right. Um, <laughs> we have to go down that road again. But, um, yeah, people don't think it's like... <laughs> Here we go again. Here goes Al. <laughs> it's 1989. <laughs> it's cold again. in Dunedin. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but one of the things you said, which is certainly relevant, is, and in keeping with that sort of reflective nature that we tend to have is that homeopaths, clinicians are natural researchers. Totally. We actually use research skills, even though sometimes they're unformed and a bit, you know, not, not sharp, but we use research skills every day in our practices. Totally. Yeah. And I think as a, I think as a profession, we're much more attuned that way than, than, um, than others, you know? I haven't thought about this. This actually, it's funny, this podcast is now taking a slightly different direction than what we had planned, but 
that's okay. I mean, well, before. once we go to the 80s, right? But <laughs> No, but what you're talking about is interesting because you're saying how homeopaths are natural researchers. And, and it's true because we are working with old materials. So we are we're having to contextualize things from another century or two centuries yeah. into contemporary pathological language, right, which requires not just sort of research skills, in other words, how to find the information, which is daunting in the beginning because of the tools we use, but also there's a, there's a, um, uh, like a translation that has to happen. Yeah. And that translation, it's interesting, it really came clear for me in the study of the history of medicine because, you know, we have there was a course I had to take that we call the disease of the week course, which every year you'd sort of do a historical deep dive into different pathologies and and their the sort of historical evolution of them. And I'm like, well, I, we identify with the old one, you know, like we talked about um, uh, chlorosis, green sickness. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, gosh, you know, I've used that rubric. You know, because we we still we still sort of qualify pathology based on the way that it would have been seen and diagnosed in the you know nineteen mostly in the nineteenth century. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. You think? Yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, it's what we do is kind of scarily Victorian. At <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, best, Edwardian. So then, so that means that the skills that are unconsciously cultivated in homeopaths are basically research skills, aren't they? They are. We, we, uh, you know, you see a remedy in a repertorization, you're not really sure about it, boom, off you go. Yeah. You know, you go hunting for it. What's that about? And there's a method. And so research is about, you know, it's about being inquisitive. Right. But it's also about a method by which you're going to go about answering your question. And um, and I think we, for the most part, develop pretty good methods of doing that. Although I notice some of our students are clearly using Dr. Google for a whole lot of... I can't believe when that happens. Question yeah. answering. In homeopathy. Not, I mean, it's one thing if it's about pathology and so forth. Naughty because, students. But yeah, in homeopathy when there are... Well, anyway, let's not go there because yeah. I'll get all worked up. All right. Don't get worked up. That'll be totally good. But there are... T- so the, the thing that I think is, as we get underway, is that, that we've got clear challenges um, uh, relating to our... Uh, relating to the, the progress, relating to um, people that are interested in research in homeopathy. And the first yeah. one is that, for the most part, our focus is elsewhere. That I, I think that because of our nature, because of the re- reason that most folks land in this corner of um, healing and, and healthcare, uh, we are we're more interested in people. We're more interested in making a difference, finding that those those gorgeous remedies that assist people along the way. And because we're a bit more introverted, we're not really we're not really um, then going to go the next step if we're busy, and then convert our results into meaningful papers. All right. So you've you've talked about sort of two or three different things there, and I want to push back on one of them, which is an assumption of of who comes to homeopathy to ultimately practice. <laughs> People can see your face. You're <laughs> incredulous that I'm going to ask a question. Um, oh, you're pushing back. I'm pushing back. Yeah. So better than shoving. Mm. The, so so where what I'm thinking about is, 
I think that there are definitely homeopaths who come to the field based on the criteria that you've demonstrated a love for people and so forth. But I also think, you know, there are a lot of people who come to homeopathy. Well, there are two other places. One is that they recognize that they've had an experience with this modality that was life-changing, mm-hmm. and they recognize that that could not have happened in other ways. Totally. You know, I think about our teaching clinic and how many times I might say to the students, what, what, what other options would this client have had? Where would they have gone? You know, somebody comes to us who has a, 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 a physiological complaint and a mental and emotional place that they're stuck and they're suffering, whether it be anxiety, depression, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and we're looking at that whole picture as a composite, right? So, so there's a way in which people come because they realize, oh, this helped me. There aren't enough people really doing this. I need to figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes those folks come with really varied skill sets. And sometimes you get what, you know, what we often refer to as the wounded heal- healer syndrome. Yeah. Right? So there's... so that. But that's my point. Oh. Yeah. Okay, can I just say one other thing, and then you tell me if it's the same thing as well? Uh-huh. The other thing is that um, <laughs> lots of people... <laughs> I'm glad I make you laugh. That's uh, really uh, it's a benefit for me. Lots of people? Lots of people come to homeopathy who are in the medical profession. Yep. And they are... I mean, we see this with a lot of nurses and a lot of the nurses and specialty NPs in our program who have experience in the medical field such that they're not sure they want to apply those same interventions or that same sort of pathway of expectation of treatment protocols in their own family. Mm. And so they've got a job that they might love that's sort of the healer thing, right? Or it's it's the, the thing that they have, you know, been accustomed to or whatever, and they know they're making some differences. But there's also this sort of natural curiosity that brings them into a different place. And then you've got this you've got this sort of a dual problem of a natural conversion strategy from within the medical profession into an what I would call homeopathy like an adjacent medical profession that operates by different standards and rules is pushing against the tide but then you know sometimes you see people who are not just you know busy people who also like helping but there are busy people who are living two lives in doing medicine and doing homeopathy. And, and then what happens, I think, is there's, a, there's almost a language barrier in how standard <coughs> medical and public health research is conducted and the ways in which research into homeopathy is or needs to be conducted. You're staring at me. Well, I was totally with you up until that last part. And, and so... I mean, I don't really know the difference between the skills and attributes of kind of conventional medical researchers compared to the folks that do research into homeopathy. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's what you meant. Well, you've got you have like a different part of the brain that's been developed, like a different muscle that's been developed, and you've been asking different questions. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most. I mean, I, I, we're not dis- on this first point. We're not disagreeing. No. I, just, I, I just think that for clinicians. They just want to fix people, and they don't necessarily want to do the work or go to the next part that is required to create research outputs that can contribute. And I think that you know that's the that's the first point that I was going to make. So, 
Do you think it's because there hasn't been an infrastructure that makes it easy to fold into an existing paradigm? Like anybody who go who says, "Oh yeah, I'm really also interested in applying my, you know, clinical outcomes or my knowledge base to the body of evidence that exists." Because it's like you have to create it because there are only so many things that exist. I mean, if we look at what the, you know, the body of evidence that's out there, some of the, you know, some of the great research that has been done, you know, I think about people like Jennifer Jacobs, Iris Bell, think about the, you know, the ways in which homeopaths have been working to, it's sort of the, the science arm of homeopathy has been, you know, trying to fold itself into the standard RCT model, for mm-hmm. example, yeah, or true. thinking about, you know, somebody like, um, like Alex Tournier with, you know, working through the lens of physics and water and the, and sort of the, um, the mechanism of action and the properties of the remedies, which I think where we've come at it is from a totally different place, right? Because those, what it takes to do that is a completely other level of specialty. Whereas I think where I was getting on those earlier points, as convoluted as I may have worked my way into it, it was that what what if you're you're sort of a healer, you're you know, you're a doctor, you've come to homeopathy maybe without a, a set of research skills, and but you're still really interested in doing something more than just practice. Because let's face it, practice can be exhausting as well. Totally. Right? So having some other way to be in homeopathy that's slightly different. Well, the oxygen has been taken out of the room by those folks, and and that you mentioned, and that's n- not a not casting shade or anything. I don't think I've ever used that word. Before. <laughs> Did like I use I said, it correctly? Casting shade. Casting shade. I mean, it, but that's not to cast say shade. Throw because shade. Throw shade. If you um, really want to, like, all right, you know, because I'm, I'm, you're I'm, so I'm, cool. I am hip in New York. <laughs> um, because <coughs> make me choke. those folks do their do their work, you know, they go about their That's work. Great. Now, when you look at the body of research that has um, emerged in homeopathy in the last, say, 10, 20 years, and just, to, I mean, if you did a quick review, uh, it falls into basic science, yeah, mechanism of action, yeah, and clinical research, what remedies are good for what, yeah, and a little bit of historical research, basically done by one or two people, yeah, and a bit of research into uh, the vets and animal outcomes. Yeah, those are the kind of categories. Not much else. And a and little bit of sort of the predictive research, like part of what Clifford called, oh, right? Okay. They- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 there's actually two other categories. There's also called um, lab- can they kind of call it laboratory research, which is a bit of rats and mice. Um, does does <laughs> yeah. you know nux vomica in the water once you've injected a mouse of al- full of alcohol? Does it assist in the recovery of the mouse? You know, that's sort of like very, very far away from what we do kind of research. And what about then, agro? Uh, no. And that, that's the so, and then the, the point that I want to make is because it's making me agro. <laughs> Here you go, being is, cool again. Is um, the, the clinician's been ignored. Mm, uh, yep. Well, the, the, the practitioner has been ignored in that um, there's this book called. Uh, new Directions in Homeopathy Research. And it, it was a consequence of uh, uh, some conversations and two conferences back in whenever it was, 15 years ago. And kind of on face value, it was an interesting process because all of these different researchers from all the different areas got together 
to talk about what was going on in their field, in their area, and what was the next strategy going to be. Right. And they didn't invite any clinicians right. or practitioners, practitioner researchers, probably because there weren't any. They didn't invite any agrohomeopathy folks, and they didn't invite any cost benefit or economic evaluation of folks or outcomes folks. Yeah. And so what it meant is that the new directions in homeopathy research were the same old directions that had already been going on. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, leaving, you know, this gap, and this is the sort of massive gap because there, and and what we're proposing, kind of gets the point, and what we're proposing is let's harness the massive unmined uh, uh, amount of data from our clinics from what actually goes on and ask questions that are much more orientated towards our clinics, yeah. our, what we do, how we think. Um, um, and, and that's not about all oh, this case because it's, it's not more more case analyses. Mm-mm. No, that's, that's been a massive challenge problem in, in homeopathy forever because when clinicians get together and they stand in front of an audience, they say, I had this really good helium case right. and the person said this and then that happened and I gave this remedy and then the sun came out and then blah, blah, blah. And it's just like the least impressive kind of evidence, well, actually. Evidence, but you have to define it's the least impressive evidence to the scientific community in terms of how it's considered to be reliable scientific evidence. Correct. It's full of white noise, full of bias, all of those things. Now, yeah, you're totally right because traditional, that would be considered to be traditional evidence in a a much kind of different context. But, And and do you think, sorry, just to, um, to stay on that point for another second before you move from it, I think part of the, that, that one fish swimming against the rest of them, Mm -hmm. um, personality trait that many homeopaths have is, well, we're not going to do what they want us to do. We do something different, and therefore, this is kind of our research. And I, no, I don't buy it, though. I, I, I know, but mm. I'm just saying that um, it's also interesting to us. I mean, I love when I go to a conference and I see, you know, one of my colleagues or one of the luminaries in our profession presenting a case where I, I get to see something in a different way, or I hear a passionate healer and teacher, you know, inspiring me to think about things differently. I mean, I think part of our sort of um, uh, the drag for us to move forward is that we also kind of like what we have. And There's right? no doubt about yeah. it. No, we love it. And, and in terms of the student experience, learning from cases is such a rich way to do it. Yeah, totally. But I don't see anyone being honest about it. What I want to hear is someone stands up in, in a conference and says, here's my case. I learned something about you know, this yeah. remedy from this experience. I don't want to hear the word cure. I don't want to hear the words, yeah. you know, this is evidence. Because it's, it, it's not. Yeah. You know, all it is, it, it is a story to an, to an extent. And those... And I just wish that... Oh, oh, sorry, let me... Because yeah. I want to rant about this. Go on. I, I rant just, away. Because there is so much... In the, in, the, in the scenario that is the cured case, there is... Thousands of moving parts that are always unacknowledged yeah. by the person that's saying the one thing that worked was right, and ren- it plays into the similar mythology. Oh my god! And it's just I can't stand it. I, I want to. I've got no hair left, <laughs> and now we know why. I got no fingernails left because they've all been. And I and I know. think you know part of what makes me sad about that is that it makes our profession feel unattainable to students because 
they, it, it sort of pushes the guru mentality oh and it puts the, the analytical process into a different realm where you need to have special powers and be able to see into somebody's soul and have some mapping strategy and some... No, you're off on a cra- Yeah, don't get me started. So you said something before, and I just want to kind of, if I can, remember it and then tidy it up a little bit. Because you're right, there are some people within our profession that say, we don't want to do what those medical researchers right. do. We don't want to lose our values. Right. I don't think asking for a level of method and rigor is losing values. You're preaching to the choir. Right. And so that is, and, and so I think that there is the third way of doing what we do, honoring what we do, you know, using our Victorian systems, <laughs> but doing it really well yeah. and doing yeah. it with a level of rigor, which has not really been brought to the conversation in a, in, in a, in a really significant way. But I think it's because now's the time. And, and now's the time. Now's the time. And I, if I, you know, looked at this retrospectively, I would say even though there is sort of a culture of kind of the best education that could be provided given the tools and the models that were available. I mean, let's look at how twenty years ago. Well, we started our program is, as being real time online when, as soon as the technology was available and accessible to the people who wanted to learn homeopathy, right? Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't matter if we had, as tech people, all this great technology if the people that we wanted to teach didn't have access to it. We were in the same boat. Mm. And so that meant up until, you know, whatever, even as recently as 10 years ago, in order to get good homeopathy education, you needed to be near a good homeopathy school, Mm -hmm. right? And if you weren't, it meant that you needed to have the funds to be able to travel to get there. And so I think accessibility of education was a bit of a, was a bit of the, uh, a difficulty, right? So, so now we've got the capacity to train people, right? And to train them well, which means there's, there's, there's room to do more within that paradigm. It's interesting because I mean, I think there'd be some people that push back against what you just said there. Yeah. Because there was Manny's school, Misha's school. Yeah. Barbara's school. Yeah. Yeah. And and in and in New Zealand there was the uh, they used to call it Bay Planning College of Homeopathy, but they used a different technology and a different model of teaching that was asynchronous. Right. And it was kind of you know you could well, say let's that just explain this for a sec. So what I'm talking about real time online learning a real thing, and yeah. what Alistair is saying is that well in actuality there have been people who who did ver- use very well asynchronous meaning you know kind of independent learning. Yeah. And and we each started there. Right, right, right. And that's important, isn't it? Yeah. But but kind of to sum this part of it up, there's these challenges that we've got around, you know, cases, around the emphasis on cases, around the emphasis on, on, on you know, the focus is elsewhere, that thing that we said at the very beginning. Um, the, the, the challenges we've got around, say, uh, funding of research in homeopathy, um, also, the challenges we've had uh, about the fact there's so much um, information, the fire hose of information. Um, uh, what else? What are, what are the other challenges we've had along the way? Yeah, the, um, the next one. Oh, that's right. The, the criticism of, of um, 
homeopathy that we're always singing to ourselves, plus that point we made before about strategy. Well, what do you mean singing to ourselves? Explain what you mean there. Well, just the fact that, you know, if I've got something to say that's related to a piece of research that I've conducted, I'm usually publishing it in a friendly journal. Right. I'm not publishing, you know, and and for whatever reason, I'm not going to publish it in a mainstream medical journal. Or in a in a maybe even in a complementary medicine or an integrative medicine journal, and so that criticism that most homeopathy research is published by homeopathy, yeah, or if it's not peer reviewed, it's published in one of our industry journals. Yeah. I think that's pretty legitimate. Yeah, but now, as I said before, the time is right because we we are reaching this place in the maturity of our profession, which mm. always makes me laugh that we're a 230-year-old emerging profession. But it's like all the ingredients are coming together now in order for things to rise, right? Yeah. So we've got more practitioners because of the accessibility and availability of education because of the technology that allows for it. And you've got the struggles within the conventional medical model and people, you know, we're, you know, if we just choose a couple of examples of how people have gotten sicker over time, like you could look at it from so many perspectives. Like if you're a sort of nutrition person, you might say, yeah, we are, you know, however many generations from the the advent of processed food, pasteurized dairy and so forth, right? That gets all the, um, all the Sally Fallon people you know, ready to ready to bring their data in, right? The Weston A. Price people have been mm. saying for a long time, like, you know, we've got these changes in the, you know, the standard American diet have influenced chronic disease. Then you've got, you know, no matter how people feel about the, you know, the V word and all of the controversy that goes along that, we are now seeing, you know, we've got to reflect on however many generations from the shift in the vaccination schedule from 1986 onward. No matter how you, you know, look at it, no matter how you feel about the public health um, implications of, you know, of infectious disease, there's still questions to be asked about, you know, whether or not the, you know, having second generation of folks who have not experienced the quote unquote childhood diseases, for example, are they, is that having any implication on long-term chronic health? You know, um, and and you know there, and then you look at the system and the financial implications. You know, we're looking at you know having to get different health insurance, and you know, one of my kids just got to the point where he's 26 and can't be on you know the family plan anymore. And I've been doing a deep dive, and I'm like, who can afford this? Right? It's just it's ridiculously expensive. It's like you know, so so you've got all the cost factors and and all of the infrastructure in the medical world. I mean, what's an MRI machine cost? I don't know, but you know that means you got to make up what the cost of having you know nuclear technology and the buildings that house it. So if you just take all these factors, you go, whoa, there's an imploding or at least a. Um, a debilitated system. And like I said before about a lot of the people who come to homeopathy who are in the medical profession, either they've had their own experience with homeopathy or they're seeking other ways to help their clients that are different than hmm. let's give another steroid, let's, you know, somebody with an autoimmune disease, let's turn off the immune system so that they don't get an inflammatory, systemic inflammatory response and therefore become symptomatic, right? So like these these things, all these factors kind of get dumped in and you go, wow, they're people, real live sick people who are facing real live choices that are not making them feel better and are super expensive are looking for other 
avenues. And it, you know, kind of closes that loop back to homeopathy, which, and you know, in the middle of the, you know, of the 19th century was sort of running neck and neck with allopathy as to who was going to be sort of on the forefront of science for the next generation. And like, all of that scientific medicine and hospital-based medicine, laboratory medicine, and all of, you know, the insurance model, all of that sort of happened at the same time. Mm. And we just sort of went fallow. Mm. And I might argue that it wasn't such a bad thing. It was like, okay, so it happened, but is this our time? Well, this is our time because with that, that's massively important what you just said there. That was a true rant. (laughs) <laughs> you know, thank that, you. Yeah, you're welcome. And it, it, it was focused and and you know and, <clears throat> and pointed us to the fact that we do. This is our time, and we do need the PGRN. We sure do. Right, and a PGRN is a practice generation, practice or practitioner generated research network, and. We at Home Foundation and our research office have been really working on how to take the interest that we have from our student population and the larger community of homeopathy and help to focus our efforts on the things that we as practitioners can do. And I think, you know, as I'm looking at how much of a lead up we had here in this podcast, um, I wonder if we should come back with the next episode to go through sort of very systematically the, I think it was nine challenges that we laid out, mm-hmm. um, and then to look at the ways in which we think we can solve it. What are some of the, you know, what are some of the initiatives that are in play? And then we can introduce the PGRN, the concept of a PGRN, but also you know, the ways in which we are putting this out to the community. How about we have a separate podcast that sort of deconstructs that and puts it into into. I don't play. think you can just change the rules like that, just change direction on me like this. Really? Well, you, you, it's, you know, you just, like, in the middle of the river, we're saying, no, what we're going to do is we're going to come back next week and talk about this. That's what you want to do, isn't it? Well, because I think what we've done is we've created interest. We've set We've set up the... We've set the scene, mm. haven't we? Um, we have. Do you, do you want? Should we reiterate those nine points then? Sure, why not? Because one of the because we didn't mention that one. We didn't mention the fact that one of the challenges that that's often spoken about in homeopathy research mm-hmm. is that we're dealing with small sample size, sizes, mm-hmm. and we just didn't mention that one. We talked about our uneven relationship with evidence. We've talked about. There's too much information. But we didn't really talk about capacity, yep. which is kind of the eighth one, I think, and and numbers. And and again, uh, we reckon we might have cracked it. So I think that's a good place to probably leave it. When we talk about capacity as being a challenge, there are some very, very important skills that I think to, to f- hone, hone, mm-hmm. yeah, fine-tune. Yeah. Um, uh, when conducting research, and I think that's actually sometimes the difference between a, a good, like a, a, an adequate jobbing homeopath that's researching remedies and stuff like that, which, you know, where there'd be a, a, a method involved, but a good research methodologist yep. is a capacity that is often missing. We've been missing some capacity. Sometimes the sample sizes are smaller 
we clearly have challenges with funding and the other ones we've spoken about. Yeah. 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 So let's do, so when we come back to talk about this, we'll kind of dig into the eight or nine points where the challenges are. And, you know, we'll look at how, you know, Home Foundation, our research office, and sort of the educational model that we've built is really helping the community to do some problem solving. And, and then we can... Um, you know, kind of help people understand how they can get involved. And I think some of what is is often considered boring, which is creating <laughs> systems, you know, um, it, it, it actually creates pathways for inclusion. And it makes, once we've got good systems in place, then people don't have to reinvent a wheel, mm-hmm. you know? And that means that, you know, we have sort of this unif- this unified um, uh, system that allows a wide variety of people to participate, and all of a sudden capacity is built. So mm-hmm. we, you know, we'll, we can talk about the infrastructure that we've focused on um, and that infrastructure came about just, it was like things happen because they happen. Um, when we started HHN, the homeopathy, well, homeopathy help now, the helpline, which then becomes the homeopathy help network as it, as it sort of bled into the um, chronic care supervision model we already had in place, all of a sudden we've got this really um, kind of intricate team of people working really closely together and creating systems so that we can make sure that we're providing good service. But also, you know, we everything that we built in our educational model has research as as a part of it. It's it's all it's baked in the cake. <laughs> Why are you cracking up? Because I was gonna say that. I was gonna say, but we baked it in the cake and then really? you said it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It, that's because you're thinking about cake. No. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I'm thinking about cake. It's that I like the way that we we built it in from the beginning. Yeah. Whatever, if there's a better expression. But that's good. All right, that's our agenda. Are we going to remember this? Absolutely. All right. I don't. I'm not. I'm not. Yes, we I, are going to remember this. You can't remember where you put your phone, but we're going to remember this. <laughs> if that's anyone for knows sure. where my phone is, yeah. <laughs> could you let me know, please? <laughs> Lisa knows. Anyway, all right, all right people. That is good. Um, Let's do it again. We'll see you uh, next time. Yeah, we'll be back in a couple days. Take it easy. All right. Ciao. Bye.